You're on the Plants Grow Here podcast. I'm Daniel Fuller. Come along with me as we enter a hidden world of deep horticultural, ecological and landscape gardening knowledge with featured experts, industry professionals and enthusiasts. There's a lot of money tied up in plants. Whether you're growing crops on a large parcel of land or you're a high-end landscaper that wants to take your photography to the next level, there may just be an application for drones in your line of work. Fiona Lake's a drone professional and educator from Townsville that spent four decades preparing for a job she didn't know would exist. She exists in the part of the Venn diagram where the arts, agriculture and small business overlap. Are drones a good option for weed control? Can you make a career out of working with drones? How do you take good photos with a drone? Stick around to the end of the episode to find out the answers to all of these questions and many more. G'day Fiona, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. It's going to be great. It's going to be a lot of fun. But I guess for some people who might be living under a rock and they've never heard the term drone before, can you paint a picture of what a drone is? Well, a lot of people describe them as flying robots, but then you go, well, what actually is a robot? Um, Some people misinterpret that as something that just goes off and does its own thing. Um, Basically, it's just a piece of tech that flies and it has to be able to sense its surroundings, uh, listen to commands, analyse the commands and then respond to commands, uh, respond to the software telling it how to adjust when it's flying. Uh, and also the user, the operator, who's giving it commands. That's basically what a drone is. And they've been around a long time. Um, Australia had a drone called Jindavik way back in the early 1950s. And if anyone's going to Woomera, you can see a Jindavik in their aviation museum at Woomera. Oh, right. So it's a piece of tech, it flies. Usually it's going to be taking commands via a remote control of some kind, right? But then I guess you also have the automated ones that are completely automated, right? Well, in a way, there's kind of nothing that's automated because a robot can only do what it's programmed to do. So there's a person either who's already written a program or or instructed a program to tell it what to do, or there's someone there just on the sticks, telling it then and there, go here, go there, go up, go down, go faster, slower, whatever. Um, So an automation really, I think, is a long way away. A lot of people kind of dream of it, but there's actually aviation safety issues uh, with that. Yeah. So it's it's just a a really, it's a big topic um, actually Mm. in itself. Yeah. We need more diversity involved in the drone industry and tech generally um, because there are ethical issues that aren't being addressed because most people who are inventors tend to get very focused on chasing shiny things and don't necessarily think long-term or the bad uses a lot of this technology can be can be put to or, or just people who aren't using it um, as they should and we do need better, we need better licensing tiers Um, for drones and for spray drones. We need national um, training and a whole lot of other things, which I won't go into now, but, yes, our laws typically are behind the technology and sometimes it's hard to get the genie back in the bottle, you (laughs) know, by making a law a few years after something has become established and bad practices become entrenched. 
Great. Okay. So I definitely want to ask you about some of the bad uses later, but I guess, you know, if we're looking at a drone, it's usually got four propellers or eight propellers right in each corner, one on the top, one on the bottom of each corner. Is that right? Pretty much? Yes, that's a quad. A quad has four motors with a prop um, attached, but there's also uh, drones with a lot more. And, and these are, um, these drones will hover. There's also um, fixed wing drones like small planes. And there's also VTOL, which is vertical takeoff and landing, which have a combination of fixed wing and also props so they can take off and land straight up and down and then they glide, which makes them very efficient. Not as relevant to horticulture because the main asset with VTOL drones is to cover large distances um, because they're very fuel efficient, energy efficient. I see. So that's more in agriculture then where you've got massive crops. Yes, but you still do have the beyond line of sight legislation. You have to be able to see a drone when you're flying it. Um, you can get special permission to fly it out of line of sight, but a whole lot's involved. You need a license, you need a use case, you need uh, risk mitigation. It can be very expensive depending on what you're doing. And again, that really only applies to high-end use, very expensive um, very expensive uses you know checking uh infrastructure that goes for miles is a good example you know some mining industry um companies have beyond line of sight because they'll fly a drone along a pipeline that sort of thing but um most farms really in australia who are using drones the best thing is just just go closer to where you want to fly just move you know fly here then move fly there Mm. Really, it's the safest thing to do. It's cheaper. It's easier. There's a whole lot of reasons why, apart from which in our additional issue too, in many parts of Australia's wedge-tailed eagles will take drones out. Most other birds not, but the wedge-tailed eagles, of course, being the kind of king of the bird world, um, show no mercy when it comes to drones. So the closer you are, the more they're very fast. There will be no bird when you launch and within a minute, there'll be hawks or a, an eagle. Well, they've got such great vision and observation skills. So if you're a long way away, um, you just won't see that kind of threat in time. Mm. Okay. So it sounds like if I want to start up a nursery tomorrow, I can just go down and buy a DGI, um, what DJI or whatever the brand is, of just you know home-use um, a, a good home use drone and just have a crack myself without having too much legislation. Is that right? Yes. Um, so long as you're not in controlled airspace, which means within um, five and a half Ks mm. of a towered, mostly a towered airport, there's uh, good airspace apps that will actually show you where the controlled airspace is, defence airspace, and you don't fly near jails, um, some security facilities, um, farm, prisons, that kind of thing. But there's good airspace apps and CASA, um, the Civil Aviation Safety Authority, has very clear summary of drone rules for recreational users. So if your drone is under two kilograms, uh, mostly you just go and you can just register it and look on the CASA website and off you go. But one thing people mostly don't know, DJI drones have 70 to 80% market share have very good manuals on the website. So I didn't know this myself when I started. I wish I did. Most of the manuals are about 60 to 70 pages long. 
full of vitamin information. So everybody, it's the first thing you do. You buy one of their drones, you go on the website, and I just go to Officeworks, actually. I put in USB and get them to print it and bind it and read it because it's full of, it saves so much time because there's a lot of things you will not figure out unless you have the manual, you know. Mm-hmm. So people just waste so much time trying to figure things out when it's all there. Um, they are good manuals. Mm. I'm guilty of that. So that's basically the three things. Yeah, you CASA rules, Airspace app, and download the manual and actually read it. Brilliant. So we were talking about, you know, your manual controls. you got your joystick controllers up, down, left, right, that sort of stuff. But what about those spectacular kind of drone displays where we've got, you know, hundreds or dozens or even thousands sometimes of these drones with lights and they're making light shows? I think there was one in China recently. I'm guessing that AI has a lot to play in that, right? Yeah, it's very it's very complicated software. Um, Shenzhen in China is like the Silicon Valley equivalent um, in China and there's nearly 300 companies there. Um, so drone light shows aren't all that uncommon. When I went to a conference there a few years ago, um, there was a last-minute change. It, it, it's a very interesting experience going there because... I, I love it because they're very flexible. Someone bobbed up with this idea, oh, would you like to come and see Drone Light Show? And, you know, you can go on the bus. And this was all, like, organised, I think it was that morning. Um, or you can go to the Hilton and have, you know, drinks. Uh, I went, well, you know, you can kind of do that anytime. Let's go on the bus. So we went off and we were just beside, um, in a paddock, just a, literally a bit of a paddock beside the factory and they're all beavering away and laid all the drones out and just put this light show on um, for us. So once you've got all the uh, right hardware and the software, it's kind of not that hard to do now. Um, our, our biggest issue with like a drone light show in Australia is our very, very, very strict aviation safety regulations and, and workplace health and safety regulations. Um and that's why our aviation industry is so safe. It's one of the safest and, and strictest in the world. Balloon pilots, for example, have to upskill when they come here from other countries, including the US or, or Europe. So our aviation industry is very safe. Uh, our drone rules do need simplifying and very much need clarifying. We also need another tier of licensing. <clears throat> but um, these are long and involved topics, so we won't, I'll try not to bog you down in too much. Thanks, Fiona. Yeah, I guess this episode is really an introduction to drones for anyone in the horticulture or agriculture industry who's probably checking on things more than they need to. So, you know, I guess that's where drones are really going to come in, and I want to talk about some of the different applications that drones have in ag and hort. But I guess let's start with the photography. Like, that's probably the most basic one. How can drones help us with photography? Well, aerial photography is much harder to do a good job of than ground photography. And always, if somebody is starting out, I recommend start on the ground. And if you're not using your phone, because pretty much everybody has a smartphone, if you're not using your phone to take photos, aerial photography with a drone is probably not going to be your thing or or you're going to struggle to do a good job. Most smartphones now have manual settings. Um, so if you have no other camera, at least use the manual settings um, on your phone because that will help you when you 
you're flying a drone around trying to take good photos. Um, I love comparisons. Uh, I actually run workshops on this where we go through fundamentals, but then I get into the more complex um, issues of how do you create images that have longevity and really make a difference? So I've never been interested in just creating pretty pictures because the world is drowning under the weight of mm-hmm. sunsets and sunrises and stuff that just looks pretty, but it's ephemeral. It becomes like wallpaper after a while. So all the images I create, I try to have a purpose. They have a story. They actually mean something. Um You'll never please everyone all the time, but if um, people remember the images you've taken, if it makes them think, for me, that's why I take photos because I want people to think about what they're seeing, Uh, hopefully think about something that they might not have thought about before. So, and photography obviously is, is so underrated now that everybody has access to decent cameras because the software in phones uh, is now fantastic. If you actually see the raw images that phones take, they're very, very bodgy. All the magic is the software. I mean, because you look at the phone camera. I mean, it's pretty basic um, hardware. And cheaper drones, you know, up to $15,000, they're basically just flying phone cameras. It's really the software that is doing all the heavy lifting now in photography, whereas 10, 20 years ago, it was the hardware. You bought good hardware because there was no software. The hardware had to do the heavy lifting. Now it is all software. Yeah, if you've never done photography at all, you really don't understand what Fiona's going on about here. I mean, I've done a little bit of macro photography just for fun on my little Olympus um, OMD uh, micro four thirds thing. And the settings is takes they take a long time to get your head around so you've got like how much light you're letting into the lens the focal length which means like how zoomed in or zoomed out you are then you've got your iso there's like so many different settings that we just take for granted in this age when we just pick up our phone and just take a photo like um i'm guessing that there's probably a lot more to aerial photography than what we could even talk about here that's a whole episode in itself yeah look but the principles are all the same it actually doesn't matter what camera you're using whether you're using a camera from, you know, 80 years ago or whether you're using something made yesterday, the principles are all the same. There's just three ways of regulating light and it's all about light. But what makes aerial photography so difficult, particularly in inland Australia and northern Australia, the closer you get to the equator, the harsher the light is. And from above, it really, really washes out the colour. And also <clears throat> getting emotion into aerial images is very 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 difficult um so i always say to photographers who come to workshops do photos on the ground do close-ups of people do middle distance and aerial photos and combine them to tell the story don't try and do it all in aerial photos because it ends up being quite cold um it really loses the emotion the personal touch people do like to see other people Um, whether it's their faces or whether it's just their bodies doing something at work, walking, Mm. you know, whatever they're doing. Um, So I delve more not, I don't go so much in the technicalities. There's a lot of people running um, camera club style uh, workshops. Honestly, if you want that kind of just a technical 
straight down the line. You can go on YouTube and you can get all that stuff. You can buy books, magazines. It's it's all the principles are the same. What I try to do is kind of the next level to get people thinking because the real magic in creating good photos occurs in your head. It's not the hmm. camera. It's not the scene in front of you. <clears throat> it's not the camera. It's actually your head, what you're thinking and what you're acting on, the details you notice, the details you cut out, the details you choose to include. That's where all the thinking goes. And when it comes to commercial photography, you have to follow a brief. You have to take photos of things that might not be particularly interesting. The weather might be bad. The light might be bad. There might be a whole lot of things that you've got to work around. And doing that makes you a much better photographer because you're out of your comfort zone and you have to push yourself. Um, so I learned mm. a lot doing magazine stories um, because I had to get portrait images of people, which is really not my forte, but it forced me to, to take photos of a whole lot of subjects that normally I would avoid. Yeah, so that, that would be probably one of my number one tips is go and take photos of things that you find challenging when the light isn't ideal, that kind of thing, because that's when anyone can take a photo of a fantastic scene in the best light and with today's cameras, it's very difficult to go wrong. Um, what sorts the sheep out from the goats is tackling the difficult subject. Yeah, when the light is bad, when it's hazy, there's smoke haze or dust haze, you know, which obviously in inland and northern Australia particularly we get a lot of. Um, that's what sorts out the sheep from the goats. Hmm. I like that saying, sort out the sheep from the goats. I'd rather be a goat than a sheep, I think, but I'd rather herd sheep. <laughs> <laughs> well, I grew up on a sheep place, you see. I grew up eating lamb chops and wearing wool. Um, so I think sheep are great. So, yeah, goats probably, I know yeah. goats are very popular now. I got in trouble the other day for, for dissing goats, but goats require a lot more careful management when it comes to looking after the environment, because it, partly because they're so much hardier, you know. Mm. Yeah, I've got some funny stories that my dad tells from when he was a kid. Um, apparently, my gran never wants to see another goat again in her life because <laughs> <laughs> they just make their way inside. You know, you can't hang clothes on the clothesline because they'll eat them. They'll just eat everything and yeah, make a big mess. So. Yeah, yeah. And contrary to popular opinion, goats just go and eat the weeds. I mean, goats are smart. Goats will eat the rose bushes, the grapevine the most valuable plants you have, talking <laughs> on a farm garden, you know, where it might have been difficult to get these things established, the goat will go and decimate all that. It will eat um, the milkweed and stinging nettles when absolutely everything else is gone, you know. Mm. So that's a big myth that kind of needs dispelling, I think, with goats. People just think, oh, they're good for eating weeds. Yeah, after everything else is gone, <laughs> you know, and there's no bark left on the trees and, yeah. yeah, so they, they do require a lot of careful management or they just decimate things. So, okay, photography, so we're trying to create a story. It's not just an image. Can you tell us an example of a story that you've told with photography that was powerful, not just because of the skill involved in the photography, but also in the skill of the storytelling, whether that's something that you've made or whether that's another photo that you've seen? Well, it is something I try to do all the time and it's, it's, it's fascinating running exhibitions because the one I held at Bondi was a favourite because I had to be there um, looking after the, the exhibition for the whole time. 
and people would come in and I would see them walk around. Some people would go around and it was just wallpaper, like it didn't speak to them, you know, that just didn't relate. Other people would come in and it was fabulous because they would pick up something in a photo that was exactly what I was trying to convey. And that was so rewarding. And and something interesting I found because in Bondi I didn't realise how many different nationalities you get there, but also there's a lot of people in the media and the arts who live in that area, that eastern suburbs area. There's also a lot of French people. And of all the nationalities, the outstanding responses I got between nationalities was from French people. It was very interesting. They'd come in and they'd look and they'd be very thoughtful and they'd make observations that exactly tallied with what I had in mind when I took the photos. Um, so I, I particularly enjoyed that. And it was quite funny, actually. I've got one French forebear who happened to be a sculptor who came out to Australia in the late 1800s. Um, so, yes, I'm, I'm, div- I'm fascinated in the, in the differences between cultures um, and how they relate to the environment how they relate to the arts and and how some cultures just marry the two together, whereas other people think the arts has nothing to do with agricultural environment at all. And I think Australia is a little bit more like that. You have to go back to the painters of 100 and 150 years ago to get a connection between the environment and the arts. And sadly, that's kind of been lost. And, and farmers generally are very creative. You know, anyone growing things tends to be uh, have a creative bent, even though they might not realise it. It's not generally recognised, I don't think. Yeah. It's a real shame that what's happening is that the people in the city are telling the farmers stories, which is a real problem, I think. Yes. Look, and it's been fantastic. Since I started, you see, I started taking photos on cattle stations Actually, I started selling them in 1982 at Ag College and then 1984 I went to work on a station and I thought, I don't know anything about this. Nobody I know knows anything about this. This is a whole different culture. And and at that time there were no photographs in the media anywhere taken by people living and working on these places. They were only by visitors, mostly from Sydney or Melbourne. So that's why I started. And since then now there is a plethora of really great, rural photographers who live and work in these places telling their own story and a a real diversity of approaches so um we've we've conquered that and and usually i'll look for gaps and then when others are doing what i initially set out to do then i move on to something else because there's always more things that need doing at the moment like this running drone workshops i thought other people would be doing it but they're kind of not or not doing what I'm doing. So I'll stick with this until other people pop up and do it and I'll I'll wander off to something else then, a new challenge, I guess. Yeah. That's awesome. So we've talked about photography now. So is that where the usefulness of drones in agriculture and horticulture ends or can we maybe use them for a little bit more than just that? Well, interestingly, the simple uses have been undersold and the complex uses have been oversold. The complex uses primarily being mapping and spray drones. Uh, The third complex use is uh, thermography, using thermal cameras from the air. It hasn't been oversold. Um, It hopefully will boom as that technology 
really improves and the prices come down a lot. Um, simple uses just means put the drone up, find a problem you didn't realise you had or find a problem you thought you might have had or it might have been small and instantly you'll find out it's a big problem or you'll find out where it is and you go and address it. So that can easily play for a drone. Um, so other technology is better for some uses. Satellite mapping, for example. Horticulture is different though because you tend to have higher value crops and because one day, one, the difference between one day and the next can be huge. Um, the necessity to get onto a problem really, really super quickly means using a drone on horticultural places is far more valuable in some ways than on like a a rangeland cattle place um, where satellite imagery is really the way to go for them, you know, and you can pay a service provider who will collect the data, analyse it and just give you back what you need to do. Horticulture, different kettle of fish. Um, Being able to put a drone up straight away and see the problem instantly is really, really valuable. But spot spraying, um, we have what I call the spray drone king in Bundaberg, um, beautiful farming area, and he's just leading the way. And he's also got ground robots. He also now sells drones and he trains the people who buy the drones from him. He's kind of like the all-round package. And I'd love to see more Jamins spread around the country, but he's he's a unique um, individual. But there are business opportunities for people to set up service businesses in regional Australia because mostly these higher-end uses are not feasible for most farmers because if you're only doing it a few times a year, it's a lot of money to have sitting around. And if you only do it every four months, you know, it's like, oh, you've got to start from scratch and remind yourself how to do it again and then you've got to update the software, then you find your batteries aren't, um, you know, you're batteries might have died, yada, yada, yada. So, And also for some people on farms who also want a sideline, perfect. You run your own place, you buy a spray drone, for example, and then you also contract out to surrounding farmers. And we're really on the brink of that. That's really a thing. And I'm surprised more people haven't taken up that kind of opportunity, to be honest. Mm. Yeah. So this sounds like a pretty good spot to ask you to tell us a little bit about like what you do. So you you mentioned you run workshops. Can you tell us what you do as a well like what do you call yourself a drone professional? Yes, I do. I do now. Um, and I guess I don't. Yeah, it. What I do is a bit odd. It's and I do say that's. I stuck this on my LinkedIn profile. I changed it actually a couple of months ago. Um, I, I say I've spent 40 years preparing for a job I didn't know would exist because everything <laughs> I've done before, yeah, chips into this job now, which I didn't know drones were going to be a thing um, because I combine small business practicality, you know, growing up in a farm, growing up in a regional area, dealing with um, telecommunications glitches, you know, having to mail things back for repair, all that kind of stuff. And, and again, the art and creativity um, as well as technology and drones. So I'm marrying together and that's what makes what I do unique. It's not because I'm the best at this, best at that, best at that. What makes me unique is the combination of things um, mm. 
that I've done over a long period of time. Yeah. So um, I am the classic, you know, jack of a few trades. <laughs> and these these things have come together in a really useful, really useful way. And, you know, very entrepreneurial. You go to a big drone conference like they have in the US, the biggest drone conferences in the world, apart from the one in Shenzhen that's on every year. They tend to attract very can-do, outward-looking people. Um, so anyone who's interested in drones, I would highly recommend going to drone events. Um, we do have a couple in Australia. Um and they all have differences. The different drone events have a different kind of feel, a different kind of focus. Um, the ones I most prefer have grassroots people who, who mm. are doing hands-on stuff. Um, like the one I went to just a couple of weeks ago in, in Las Vegas, which, of course, is like the conference capital of the world. Mm. That's pretty cool. So I guess... We're talking about a career path that's something that's you just fallen into, right? So that's not you didn't go to uni and study drones in agriculture. You and I were talking about this recently on LinkedIn. Can you tell us about some of the misconceptions around how passion and work interrelate together in someone's career? Oh, yes. One of my most disliked saying, you know, oh, find a job you love and you'll never work <laughs> another day in your life. Um, you know, well, let's all go and be coconut counters and line the palm trees or something. I don't know. You know, I, I say you've got to find something you care about. And I actually started out, I was I, I was nearly going to be a teacher, um, but I didn't want to go straight from school and then into teaching. You know, I, I, ideally every teacher would have at least five years' experience out doing other stuff, preferably in mm. small business, um, to give you a good grounding but I actually love passing on what I've learnt and love helping other people. And I love helping people get more confidence um, because older people particularly have swallowed the myth that we can't adopt new technology. It frustrates me so much because I just say to people, and I actually got a slide now in, in one of my presentations that lists all the things I've had to master, which all other people um, of my age and older have had to master, you know, like the, the TV was black and white. We had three <laughs> channels. There was no remote. There was no microwave ovens. There was no dishwashers. Um, you know, the only phone was the landline, blah, 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 blah. When I started with a computer, first turned a computer on 1982, black and white screen, and all it had was a flashing cursor. You had to type in a command to get it to run the start program. Um I'm not no tech whiz, you know, I, I kind of in a way run screaming from it. It's got to be practical. But so many things I've mastered, so why can't all these other people my age and whatnot also do it? Um, so ageism really now for me has become something I try and counter uh, and also women because drones, you know, we have more pe women trained to um, shear sheep than we do fully licensed to fly drones in Australia. The commercial aviation industry in Australia has about twice the number of women flying passenger aircraft than we do fully licensed to fly drones. I mean, mm. that's crazy. I, you know, I, I just think that's mad because drones are relatively easy to get into. So anyone who's also looking for career change, you know, there's a lot of people who've career change like ex-defence force, 
um, members are a good example and quite often I'll get one or two who turn up at, at drone workshops. The skills I already have, the key to building uh, a career in the drone industry and probably tech generally is to build on your existing experience or interests. What are you interested in? What do you care about? Um, what's your experience? And if you don't have any experience, that's fine, but what are you interested in? You know, what did you find useful at school? Um, and the harder something is, providing there's the demand, that's where the money is. I often tell kids at school, go into AI because AI specialists are often earning more than the CEO of the company they're working for. <laughs> they're so in demand. And it makes your head hurt, you know. It's hard slog getting into that field. But honestly, that is the way of the future. We're going to need a lot more people who are programmers, um, programmers, engineers, you know, getting into machine learning, all those, all those fields, um, because we we import a lot of people to do that, and it's good to have the mixture of homegrown and imports get together because we are really good at um, producing new technology here, but mm. you know. The competition is ramping up, and we are at risk of being uh, left behind with old world, school, old world skills in a new age world. Other other countries will leapfrog us, and drones are really, and other kinds of technology are really taking off in some. Sorry, about, that's a bad pun. Um, in taking some off. African countries, for example, <laughs> yeah, I know, missed it. I probably shouldn't have drawn attention to it. Um, but yeah, some African countries, drones are going gangbusters. Um, and there's a lot of women in the drone industry there, um, kicking great goals as well. Yeah. Totally. Just like in every other field too, like this myth that women or elderly people, you know, no matter what your age is, no matter what your gender is, even how you identify anything like that, like these are silly barriers. We can't let this get in the way of what we want to do. But then also we have to balance it with like, okay, we love flying drones. We love going down to the park and flying a drone. We love taking photos, but you can't make a business from that. That's not going to make you money. It's There's going to be a lot more to it. Even the best drone photographer who makes however much every photo they take, there's so much work behind that. You've got to cold call people. You've got to set up your business. You've got to do your SWOT analysis before you get started. There's just so much to it. And um, I think people get lost in what you said, like, do something you love and you will never work a day in your life. That's never going to happen. That's never happened for me. That's never happened for anybody I know. The people who love their jobs the most hate some parts of that job. Yeah, there's there's all this behind-the-scenes stuff, you know, and with flying drones, there's a huge amount of admin and faffing around. Like most of the day, I spend all day every day in front of the computer. Um, and people say, oh, do you get excited by drones? I'm like, well, no, it's a handy tool. <laughs> you know, it's great. I, lo I love the autonomy and I feel really bad, but I'm I'm supposed to start waving my arms around, jumping up and down, and I just can't do it because I've been taking photos from the air since the late 80s. So now flying in a helicopter with the doors off, taking photos, I do get excited because you take <laughs> off in a helicopter. It's like a magic carpet, you know, and, and I've been lucky. I've flown with a lot of the best bush um, chopper pilots there are. Um, really interesting people and we have good chats, you know, like it's the whole package. And I guess that's the thing. People forget to think also like like a customer. And I've always been, my mother was a great mail order customer. So when I um, 
yeah, when I started my business selling books, I've always thought like a customer, you know, what what do I like as a customer? What do I hate as a customer? It's just number one, anyone in any kind of small business. And, and weirdly, it's kind of overlooked. People think, oh, I want to do this and I want to do that. Well, that's great. But mm-hmm. why should anyone pay you? You know, what's in it for them? There's got to be something in it for them. You've got to solve a problem. You've got to make their life easier. You know, and so back to the basic principles. Ideally, you should be taught in primary school. You know, the teacher should get out, get every kid to have a lemonade stand, you know, one day at lunchtime and see how they get on. They'll learn about supply and demand really quickly and market forces. Mm-hmm. You know, who's making the best will be popular, but mostly it'll be who's making the cheapest. So, um, you know, that would be actually a simple exercise in a school to teach kids the principles that will carry them right through life. And it it, it applies in all the labour market, doesn't it? Absolutely. Yeah, supply and demand. And what what is what you're offering worth to someone? Um, You might be the best, but people might not care that much about the quality that you're you're doing. Mm -hmm. So... I find all that really interesting, though, kind of all the intricacies of of how business works. And, and again, in, in workshops that if I have photographers, for example, because you get a lot of still photographers and then want to get into drones, which is a really smart move because they're building on what they already mm. do, you know. And so we talk a lot about that and have a really good discussion on how to price things, how to calculate things, how to position yourself. And with drones, one of the main things is to specialise. So you can either be a regional specialist, like you can become the best in your area, or you could become a subject specialist depending on where you are, you know, so if it's a particular type of crops or agricultural industry um, or, you know, infrastructure or using LIDAR or using thermal drones, you specialise and become the best at that. But you have to obviously stick with it for a fair um, length of time you've got to be committed and build a reputation up and then people come to you you don't have to chase them that's the power of branding yes it is and I kind of tend not to think of the terms I just kind of think of mm. again how it is to be a customer it's almost like an energy thing like a river or something like that right so water flows down where the biggest holes are is where the biggest water is going to go you've got to look at where the water's running if you dig a big hole at the top of the hill where no water's going to run into it, unfortunately, you've just wasted your time. Yeah, you have. And, and I've tried a lot of things sometimes because I've always looked for gaps and sometimes you go, oh, the world really needs this. Like someone mm. should be doing this, but can you do it for an economic cost? You know, and sometimes the answer is no. And like many self-employed and kind of self-motivated people, sometimes you hang on too long to something that's probably not going to work. Sometimes it's just timing. Sometimes it's just too early and Mm -hmm. five years later it would be a goer Um, because sometimes I have an idea and I talk to people and it's like I'm talking another language. They're like, what? Mm -hmm. And then five years later it becomes a thing. And you go, (laughs) I was talking about this. The beauty of having a blog is you can go, see, yeah, <laughs> I told you all about this five years ago or ten years ago. You weren't listening. Um, there was actually something I looked up on my blog this morning just to remind myself of something, and I went, "Wow, that's ten years ago I wrote that," because my website now is nearly twenty years old, which makes it kind of ancient in um, internet terms. 
Um, and it's actually due for a big renovation. I've got to pay to get all the coding redone. Um, but altogether, it's, it's, it would be more than 500 pages, including all the blog posts Jeez. that I've written over a lot of years. Um, but that's why I like what you wrote. It's very practical what you've written, like how, why don't you set up a lawn mowing business? These, this is the equipment you need. This is what you need to do. It's so practical. Right. And I wish there were more blog posts like that because people can go oh, there and, and just go, wow, here's the template. Whereas a lot are opinions mm. and opinions are great, but really, you know, we've all got one and ultimately they're not. <laughs> yeah, you know what they're like. <laughs> yeah, well, they're not necessarily <laughs> useful, are they? So I like to give people pithy stuff that they can actually go out and use and put into practice straight away and get them thinking about things they haven't thought about that, you know, if they get a few little useful things to change course or add on, then, then my work is done. That's it, it is very satisfying um, being able to do that. So basically, I run, I run workshops which contain everything I wanted to know when I first bought a drone in 2016, and there was no training that covered what I wanted to know anywhere. I went everywhere. Uh, you know, I went overseas to other events and whatnot. And everywhere I'd find a bit of this and a bit of that, but there wasn't anyone who was running even half of what I include. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to put it all together to give people what I wanted myself, basically. I can so relate with that. Like you see something that should exist, but it doesn't exist. And then you're just like, oh, well, I'll bloody well make it. Because that's how everything gets made. Someone has to make it. Like, we think, oh, the government will do it or, you know, Elon Musk will do it or something like that. No, it's, he's just another one of us. Yeah, exactly. And they're all taking risks. And mm. I never wanted to be, you know, one of those self-made people who went from nothing to whatever because I know the risks they take and you mm. need a particular kind of personality to take those kinds of risks. And the reality is, and I think this has always been the case, 99% of people do not want to take risks. I've had people say to me, oh, you're so lucky, you know, you, you travel around, you do this, you do that. And I'm like, yeah, and I've taken a lot of risks and sometimes I don't know where my next bean is going to come from. Um, and it's usually said by people in, in with a regular income, um, very predictable way things are going, and that's fine, but it's a choice. Um, I don't enjoy taking risks any more than anyone else. But I just feel the need, if something needs doing, back to, you know, when I started doing those photos and, and then postcards because I got into postcards because the postcards across the north were appalling. They were like Hereford standing in green rolling hills down near Tamworth and these things are being sold on the Barclay Tableland where, you know, it's, it's Downs country and it's brown for, you know, like 10 months of the year or whatever and different breed of cattle, uh, you know, Brahmins not, European breeds so I produced postcards with information on the back and sold them across across the north and then I produced books because the same problem with the books there was no books with really authentic images and none at all with authentic um, captions explaining what people were seeing so and then a lot, a lot of other people brought out books so I would like to do more books but the market got totally flooded um and and book selling is a bit of a challenge but you know I'll probably do another book or two in future just to address some gaps um that I see maybe a couple of fun projects 
Hmm. That could be fun. So, Fiona, we talked a little bit about, you know, some of the good uses. So we've got photography, we've got thermal imaging, we've got some other ways that we can help our plants, you know, help monitor our plants, you know, beyond just getting in the ute and driving all the way around the property every single day or hiring a plane like we'd have to do in, in the old days. But what are some bad uses that we need to keep an eye on that can be harmful to society or harmful to a business or, or even an individual? Mostly it's people ignoring rules. Um Flying over the heads of people is a no-no. Flying within 30 metres of people is a no-no. You just don't. Um, They can fall out of the sky. Props can come off. The props aren't just harmless plastic. They will, if a a prop, even on the smaller drones, uh, gets across your eyeball, you're not going to be ever seeing out that eyeball again. And it's amazing, actually, that there haven't been more accidents but it's highly likely there have been accidents and they've just never been reported because if someone has an accident, they go to the hospital, they get treatment, it doesn't necessarily, it won't be reported anywhere and it won't make it to the media. So I would say there's been a lot more. There's been a lot of people who've cut themselves badly enough to get stitches um, with the props. So they're they're the obvious things with regard to people on the ground. Um, Treat them with caution if you're fully licensed, you can fly a bit closer to people, up to 15 metres, but people have to have given permission. So whenever there's people around, you've got to be extra careful and you should fly as if your drone could fall out of the sky at any time. That's a bit like driving a car thinking, okay, if I had a blowout now, how would I go? Um, and then the secondary thing is too to being mindful of other things that are flying in the sky. So a 12-inch a uh, set of fencing pliers will can bring down an R22 helicopter, for example, uh, that hits the props. So a small drone would have no trouble either. You know, and there's ultralights, gyrocopters, uh, mustering choppers, and most mustering choppers pilots are afraid of heights. So typically they'll fly just above tree height, right where drones typically fly. Um, and so it's a myth that you can go anywhere, the remotest part of Australia, and, and an aircraft can... Um, it just appear flying fairly low. You also get defence aircraft sometimes that will fly relatively low. Um, so you don't fly a drone further than you can see it. Uh, you don't fly it when you're driving along um, because you can't hear if aircraft are approaching um, and you usually hear them before you see them. Um, but also with spray drones, we do need better organised rules and farmers have um, an exemption to fly a drone up to 25 kgs flying over their own land without training. And really, it's not a popular thing to say, but that should change. Everyone flying a drone over two kilograms or certainly seven should have some kind of formal training, uh, particularly if you're flying a spray drone. Um, so you have to get a chem cert, but you should have... Um, training in actually the theory of how to fly a large drone and how to maintain it, how to keep records, mm-hmm. how to look up batteries, all these things. The ba- batteries, lithium batteries are a, a big fire risk. Um, they can burn your house down, you crash the drone, you can set fire to your paddocks and, and your neighbour's wheat crop or whatever. Mm. Um, so we do have some legislation really. We, we need better rules basically. Um, and with spray drones, 
we do have an issue. People can import them direct. Um, spray drift obviously requires correct um, flying in the right conditions, but also requires particular droplet size, depending on the conditions, how high you're flying, all this kind of thing, and what crop you, <clears throat> or what um, weeds or whatever you're treating and with what. So there are things that people are following, but we need legislation is behind again. And in order to protect our clean green image, I really think this is something that needs addressing, yeah, spray drones, because they're, they're starting to really... Uh, use of them is starting to really ramp up. We need better machine learning so we can differentiate between weeds at all stages and mm. then sp spot spraying of weeds, particularly in inaccessible areas, um, will absolutely be godsend, given that weeds cost Australia an estimated $8 billion a year. Um, that is an area where the government would really get good value if they stump up cash and training in the right areas to address this and also for research on machine learning. There is a bloke in Sydney who's got an open learning project on weeds, weed recognition, um, and $8 billion, well, gee, um, if you spend a few million um, and make a dent in that $8 billion cost, it's, that's a good return. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So some people, I think some people arc up as soon as they hear the word spray. They're like, ah, oh, we don't want any spraying. Actually, what we're talking about here is targeted spraying, right? So we're getting less chemicals on our crops. We're getting them more on the weeds. So that's only a good thing for everybody. Yes, yes, exactly. And, you know, if you've got, if you're ne next to a national park and there's a bit of a weed infestation, if, you, if, if that goes in and is addressed by spot spraying early on, you're actually going to save so much chemical having to be applied down the track because, as we all know, you know, you see one weed, they're like rabbits. You know, you come mm -hmm. back the next year, there's a whole family. You come back the next year, there's a whole country full of weeds. Yeah. Um, so the stitching time thing and a really interesting fact from Swarm Farm who make fabulous ground robots, which I just think are the ants' pants. Um, they're in central Queensland here. Um but he was saying their robots, their ground robots, and this is what you use in open, um, fairly level um, country. But he was saying they do more passes, but they found after a number of years that they completely eradicate or virtually completely eradicate the weeds. Whereas if you're doing that in a conventional tractor, there's only so many times you're going to be lapping around the paddock in your um, heavy gear and you get soil compaction as well. Um, so these robots that Swarm Farm made are completely redesigned. They're not like the case tractors that are just like normal case tractors with the cab removed. So they're really still big and heavy. Um, yeah, the Swarm Farm ones are completely redesigned, so they're relatively light. They've got high clearance. And the potential for those to address weeds, for example, too, in the Downs country up here in North Queensland and, and across the north into the Northern Territory, the woody weeds, is is just priceless. To be able to get to weeds when they're small before they become bigger and, and harder to eradicate and the fact that they can keep going backwards and forwards, they can do it 24-7, you know, and then they mm. automatically come back um, for refilling and recharging. They're just amazing. Mm. 
Brilliant. Oh, I should mention too, in, in STEAM um, treatment and also laser treatment of weeds uh, are two things that are also um, really, really exciting. Um, I know in Brisbane, the Brisbane City Council, for example, has one of the STEAM weed killers. Um, I haven't seen it there. I saw one in um, Belgium um in a touristy area and they loved it actually because they don't need tourists don't need to move they can just go along and kill all the weeds with steam in a public area and there's and there's no problem so i think there's huge potential for um non-chemical means of killing weeds with robots because the beauty is the robot can do more laps can go around when the weeds are only small and so it's a lot easier to kill them, for example, with steam rather than when they've become established. And steam's not going to kill mm. established woody weeds. But little tiny seedlings, yeah, that's when steam, for example, um, is a goer. So I guess these robots, particularly the robots that you're talking about and also drones, it's like having another staff member, you know? <laughs> it's like having someone who's working in your business or maybe maybe drones are a little bit more like a tool, but... The automated weeder that you're talking about reminds me of um, of the mowers that we have, the automated mowers. So it's like you just set them and you forget them and um, that's just the task that's just being complete. And I'm guessing that drones come into play sometimes with some weeding applications and then some weeding applications probably aren't suitable for a drone. No. And look, and the basic rule of thumb is if you can do it on the ground, you do it on the ground. You only use a drone when that's the cheapest, most efficient, most effective or safer way to do it, whatever, you know, you, you always use. And a lot of people early on bought drones to do water runs on big places for stock. Uh, with water telemetry systems are so, so much better. Drones are not suited for doing that kind of stuff. Long distance travel between water points is just not mm. practical. And, you know, we've got some really good companies who produce this um uh, water monitoring technology now, um, yeah, it's kind of a no-brainer. And and all the people I've met who have installed um, water point monitoring systems wish they'd done it earlier, say it was paid off within about three years and absolutely love it, you know, and go to the other side of the planet and, and check their bores and troughs, um, things like that. So a lot of this stuff actually has mental health benefits because running any business, you'll end up with worries. You're worried about this, worried about that. Getting an overview with a drone can instantly either put your mind at, knees, at ease or at least quantify that, yes, you do have a problem. And so then you know, so then you can go and act on it rather than just worrying about it. And, of course, you know, in the old, you could go and hire a chopper or a plane to do it, but, it, you know, a cheap drone will cost you $1,500 or so, um, you just get out, put it up instantly, bam, you've had a look and you can put it up again this afternoon and put it up again tomorrow if you want and have another look. Um, so there are actually unexpected, unintended consequences of, of finding problems early or at least finding that you don't have a problem that you thought you might have had. Um, and I don't think that's to be underestimated because energy is a thing every Every person in small business particularly, you know, you can you can buy more staff or, you know, time and money are the things people talk about, but really it's your energy. It's mm. your energy for new projects. It's your enthusiasm for what you're doing. That is the, your most priceless asset that you really must look after. And so using the right technology 
to um, put your mind at ease and address problems early. Uh, to me, it's priceless. Mm. I couldn't agree more. So for any business owners who are listening right now thinking like, oh, gee, this drone stuff sounds interesting. I wonder if there's an application in my business. What advice do you have for them? Well, it depends on, yeah, look, it's hard to say because it depends on really what industry mm. they're in. And I mean, I <laughs> guess first you would go to your industry body and ask them um, whether, you know, what are you doing in technology? Who would you direct me to? Who do you know who's working in this space? The answer might be oh, nobody or we don't have a policy or we don't have any resources. Um, but then I guess you'd look to other leading people in your industry uh, and ask them um, what they're doing and find around. And, of course, people often ask me random, I get random messages from all over and one of the things I do I'm, I'm kind of like a conduit I will I will send people I'll connect people um, so LinkedIn for example is is brilliant for this and it's really good too because a lot of engineers their forte is engineering not communication and but you can go on LinkedIn and it's very uh, blokey and very direct this is why I like it there's no faffing around so you go in there you connect to the right people there's just a plethora of really good quality information. There's also drone groups on Facebook. Most of them, some of them are well moderated, but even so, there is a lot of misinformation, um, misleading information and missing information. Um, there's a lot of opinion addressed as facts. So I'm in a lot of drone groups online um, and it can be hard to, again, sort the wheat from the chaff if you're not really in that industry but um yeah i also have some blog posts on what drone to buy and a few different things like that for people because i'm asked so often so i have a summary there that people can go and read because you go anywhere to buy one and you'll be sold whatever the salesperson wants thinks you know they can get you to buy <laughs> and i've met a lot of people who wasted thousands on technology that just is not suited to what they want to do or not suited to their personality you know it requires a lot more time that they don't have for example mm. Mm. yeah that's right so what about I think we've talked a little bit about careers but what about someone who's thinking like oh you know maybe I should buy a drone and start some freelance work in the afternoon or something like that like is that a feasible like is that realistic or should they just stick at their day job no, no, it's totally feasible if if you do your research first, you know, and, and I guess it's that old do you, SWOT analysis, you know, what are you good at, what are your assets, what experience do you have, um, what is the need in, in your local area or your local industry and everyone should have some kind of training even if it's just um, a one-day workshop or a two-day workshop uh, not necessarily going getting fully licensed, depending on what you're doing. If you're flying a bigger drone above 2kgs, you have to go and get a license. Now, a remote pilot's license is roughly $2,000. Uh, the remote operator's certificate is roughly another two. Like the, the two combined cost me $4,500. I don't actually need that because I don't want to fly around Sydney Harbour, um, but that's what I'm trained up to be able to do. Hmm. Um so investigate carefully what 
what your assets are, what do you, what's your network, what's your knowledge, uh, what's your surrounding area or the field that you're looking at, what do they need, um, can you provide it, and then what you would need to do. And upskilling, I'm a great believer in, you know, continual upskilling. I do so many short courses. I go to events. Uh, I'm not doing it all the time, but every year, um, I'm going to an event and, and a workshop and listening and learning. And I do a lot of research online because most things are on Google. But as you said before, that was another good point worth mentioning. It's amazing what actually isn't on Google. And I find that quite intriguing given the weight of stuff that is on there. But if you go there, there are big gaps there's big gaps, so there's opportunities for people also to provide more content and market their business that way, simply by providing information that nobody else has thought to go and write um, in a really clear and useful way. Yeah, and maybe it's not that there's has, someone hasn't done it, but people are searching for you know agriculture drones Tamworth. So you can pop up in that search. So every single search that someone does on Google, Google's job is to match that with someone providing the answer. So if you can provide a better answer than the person who already has an answer there, then Google are going to preference you. And then you get rich, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, everyone wants information for nothing these days. That's the (laughs) downside of the internet, of course. (laughs) And if you're in the business of collating a lot of information and then sharing it to earn a crust, that can be quite challenging. (laughs) Um, You know, and every photographer who ever listens to to this and every other thing goes, oh, yes, it's the old, oh, would you like to do this? We have no budget for it, but it will be good publicity for you. And I'll be like, I've been doing this 40 years now. If I still need publicity, like I should be giving up by now. How'd you find me? (laughs) <laughs> yes, yes, yes. That's that's the other thing. You came to me because you heard of me, like hello. <laughs> um, so they've already kind of, yeah, missed that step. Um, but it's got to be worthwhile. And look, um, there's that old thing of women do tend to under, undercharge. So I, I also have, I'm, I'm a great believer in, in encouraging diversity and helping people. There's so many good event speakers who'd never have spoken at events so, again, I've actually written blog posts on that to help people get into event speaking because, to me, that's the key that leads on to so many other opportunities. Learning, I mean, if you have to make a presentation, you will learn more about your particular topic because you've got to be really thorough. You've got to really know your stuff. You've got to know more than what you're mm. talking about on stage. Um, it took me 20 years on stage to to not feel like I was going to have a heart attack every time I was and think, oh, my God, why did I think this was a good idea? Um, but that is something I would really encourage anybody listening. You, you know, everybody who's been doing something for a little while will have something useful to impart to others. It might not be a keynote at a national conference, but you can start small, get into it, and you'll learn, you'll get direct feedback from people. Um, yeah, and go to my blog post because I've actually got a whole lot of tips there, again, stuff that I wish I'd known to start with about how to get started. And it, and it leads on to so many other things and, and you will learn. You're not just teaching, you're actually learning yourself at the same time. It's kind of win-win all round. 
Totally. And can you mention that URL? I will be in the show notes, but just so that people who don't check the show notes know what to type in. Oh, well, it's just um, Fiona Lake. If anyone Googles me, they'll probably find me yapping away somewhere. There's a lot of Fiona Lakes, but I'll be fairly obvious. FionaLake.com.au um, is the name of my website. But I've got lots of different social media channels and they tend to, each one has a bit of a different focus. My Facebook page is mostly photography related. Um, my LinkedIn page, I've been talking more about robotics and technology there of late and solar weather. Solar weather is something I talk about now in relation to drones. Um, And then Twitter, where I just jump across random topics, depending what, it's like licorice all sorts. You never know what you're going to get, which which is what all the social media experts tell you you shouldn't do. You're supposed to be predictable. I just get so bored with um, (laughs) predictability. And my, my Instagram account is just feral. It's just mostly phone, random phone photos. Hmm. Um, there's very little of my commercial work online because people just steal it too much gets pinched um, so mostly it just stays in books and and get goes direct to the people who paid me to take the photos yeah mm-hmm. brilliant so how are the industry staff shortages affecting your work with drones well I would have thought that many employers would have suddenly ramped up their adoption of technology and from what I've seen it's surprising there's very few Mm. and I don't doubt there are some but mostly the people who are adopting technology the out there people have already done it they've already they've already gone down that path they're already getting amongst it Um, and then the others are not and I can't understand it because you can do the figures on a lot of this technology in the back of an envelope and you can see it's a no-brainer mostly within three years it will be paid off and it doesn't kind of replace people because you'll still need someone to drive it, to oversee it, to program it and to go and do the action, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But what it can do, it can make you a lot more efficient, a lot more productive. Um, and it can give people some time off because most people in any kind of small business now are working too many hours, mm. you know, and that's bad for productivity. It's bad from every angle. It doesn't mean you're creating more or you're better off necessarily. Um, We're talking mad hours, you know, people working 70, 80 hours a week or whatever. Um, It's it's crazy. So using technology judiciously can give you, pig back some of that time, yeah, Mm. that you're otherwise spending. Once once you've got it up and running, there is that early teething thing where you've got to get stuff up and running. But, yeah. Completely. So, Fiona, at the end of every episode, I always like to ask my guests, is there anything else you'd like the listeners to know about? doesn't have to be on topic, can be about anything, can be a plug, can be a message that you'd like to give to the world, maybe you'd like to advocate a change. Um, mainly it's just on the message of how beneficial drones particularly are. They're recognised stepping stone into taking up other kinds of technology. For kids, they're incredibly useful because they relate to almost every subject kids study in primary school, for example. Um, but they must be done under supervision. You must have rules with the drones. You don't just buy um, your kids a drone and then send them off. Right, off you go there. Um, you've got to have rules on how to do it. It's kind of win-win all round. So I'd really encourage parents, if you've got kids who've got any kind of interest, go and buy, you can buy really cheap ones, you can spend less than 200 bucks, 
um, to get someone started, yeah, you you wouldn't regret it. There is just so much involved. And press your local council. Everyone needs to nag their local council to get into it and to set up a drone park where kids can go, families can go, tourists can go, be tourist attraction, um, and also check with your local schools. You know, are your local schools running drone programs? If not, why not? Um, they all should be. They all should be into it because honestly, when you see some other countries, China particularly springs to mind. The amount, you know, they're giving kids little drone kits when they're young. Here, go and put these drones together. Um, we're going to be so far behind the eight ball. We're going to be the, you know, the Western country with the old world skills um, dependent on others. They're going to leapfrog right over the top of us if we don't get busy and get with the program. And it starts with schools and, and councils because a lot of councils can be a bit anti-drone. They need to get mm. their act together and, and reverse it. Mm. Well, they're worried about privacy, safety, all the rest, right? The same things that we're worried about. Oh, well, liability too, public liability. But these councils mm. also have dog parks. Well, I tell you what, you're far more likely to have an <laughs> issue at a dog park, you know, because old feral takes a little fluffy down that wouldn't bite anybody and next minute little fluffy's bitten half the people in the dog, dog park. Um, mm. You're going to have less issues with a drone park than a dog park. Um, so mostly it's educating councillors as to the potential benefits, how you set it up, what you've got to do. I did run a presentation for Western Queensland councils at a drone event a couple of years ago and said, right, this is what you can do, this is the benefits. If you set up a, uh, in Western Queensland, if you set up a trail of drone parks in, in the Western Queensland towns, it would be like a world-first tourist attraction. People would actually come to go and fly there. Um, sadly, no one took it up. I don't understand why because they're very efficient mm. councils. Um, I tried nagging, so maybe now it's up to the locals in those areas to to pick the ball up and run with it. What a fantastic note to end it on. Thank you so much for a great episode, Fiona. Oh, thanks so much for having me on. You asked such great questions um, and it's always really thought-provoking. I, I enjoy it. Thank you very much. As always, check the show notes to get in touch with Fiona if you'd like to seek her advice, have her speak at your event, or you'd like to work with her on a drone-related project. Fiona mentioned my blog where I wrote an article about starting a mower business. I started that blog before the podcast and I'm about to migrate it from plantsgrowhere.com to hortpeople.com for SEO purposes. If you're a fan of the Plants Grow Here podcast, you probably already know about the job board I created at hortpeople.com. There are some great jobs on there, including working with green walls, and there's even a job with UMS performing grounds maintenance for the F1 Grand Prix at Albert Park in Melbourne. There are roles available for people with skills and experience, as well as people who are completely new to the industry. 